Welcome to Life on Purpose. My name is James Lachlan, former seven-time world champion musician and now success coach to leaders and high performers. Each week, I bring you an inspiring leader or expert to help you live your life on purpose. Thanks for taking the time to connect today and investing in yourself. Enjoy the show. You are in for a real treat. So put your feet up and enjoy this intimate interview I had with Sir John Key, former Prime Minister of New Zealand. The interview was held in Queenstown, New Zealand in a live setting. John was a special guest of mine this year at my Leaders Mastermind event. If you'd like to learn a little more about how to join the Leaders Mastermind, please head over to my website, www.jjlachlan.com forward slash mastermind. Members of my most recent mastermind included CEOs of software companies, property investors, financiers, startups, and professional rugby player Sam Whitelock. So head over and check it out. But for now, enjoy the show. John, I'd like to welcome you down to Queenstown. Thank you very much. Yeah, great to be here. This is the Leaders Mastermind 2021, yeah. and we've got leaders from all different backgrounds all around New Zealand. Yeah. And today's all about listening to you around yeah. what you did as yeah. one of the country's greatest leaders. Yeah. So, John, I'd love to ask you, you know, what is your definition of leadership? Ultimately, it's achieving the outcomes and the vision that you have for whatever you're doing, because leadership could be of a scout pack, or it could be of the country, or it could be of a business organization or a sporting team, or, you know, there are many different forms an organization or entity can take, including just yourself, leadership of your own life. So I think it's, you know, ultimately about what am I trying to achieve and how can I make that possible? And more often than not, that just does involve a lot more than one person and so it's a I think it's a plan for putting together how you're going to motivate people to achieve the outcomes you want and the results you want mm-hmm. and in your time as a leader obviously as PM but then working now in yeah. a lot of boards yeah you get to rub shoulders with some amazing leaders yeah what would you say are some of the core principles key principles of leadership yeah, I mean, I think the first thing is they always sort of say, you know, it's a bit like, you know, when you take a ship out from harbour, you've got to know where you're going. So I think the first point is, how would you define success? And can you write down what the definition of success is? Because in a lot of companies, when you go in there and you say, okay, tell me what tell me what success is, right? They, they can't actually write down. Or if you ask 20 people in the organisation, they have a very different definition of that. And if they don't know where they're going, they don't know what that really looks like. How will they even know if they've actually got there? And how will you know what the, the what the you know sort of strategy is? And our son, he's 26, and so <clears throat> he's got degrees in property and finance, and he you know worked at Jardins for a couple of years and the equity desk, and then went and did the big one year OE, unfortunately just before COVID actually. And then he was going to actually go go to Los Angeles. He had a job in finance in Los Angeles, and I said to him, "What do you want to do?" And he said, "Actually, I want to. I really want to be a property developer. You know, I, I want to. I, I want to live in Auckland. I think I want to live there for next my life. You know, fifty years type thing. And I think conceptually, I can do really well in that. And so I said, "Okay, well, if you come back, um, you have to go away and think about what that looks like. And then if you 
want to will back you, you know, you've got enough resources to make that happen. You know? So anyway, so he came back and he spent months actually and came back and said, here's the model of what I want to do and how it's going to work and it's actually worked out really well. And I said to him, okay, you know, well, you have to set up a little company and so he did that. has got MTK Capital because it's Max Tim Key, so it's all good. And I said to him, what's the vision statement for the company? He just looked at me and went, oh, Jesus, you've been too long in the boardroom. And I said, no, no, what's the vision statement? He goes, I don't have one. I go, well, when you get one, I'll think about whether we're going to give you some money. And anyway, about a day or two later, he came back and then we sort of panel beaded this thing. And I said to him, the vision statement, well, in the end, the vision statement we broadly agreed on was we're going to buy and, and develop houses that we would like to own and other people want to own. And you sort of sit there and you go, okay, well, that's pretty simple. And I go, yeah, it is. But we've looked at about three or four sites in the last six months and I've said to him, does it meet the vision statement? Do we, like, do we really want to own that? Like, you know, do we really, and he goes, yeah, yeah, but we can make money on it. I said, mate, yeah, we can make money on it today, but by the way, everything we do is time delayed. So like in, you know, a year and a half, it's going to come out of the ground and be finished or whatever. And so are you really sure? And we've turned down things that we thought, you know, because they just didn't fit what we wanted. So I think, and for companies, it's easy to sit there and say, well, it's all about profit, but is it really? I mean, you know, it's also in the modern world we live in about the reputation of the organisation and whether it fits with, you know, a whole bunch of things. Do you even have a climate policy? Or, you know, I might even agree with some of the things, but ultimately um, you, you do have to have a broader view. So I think firstly it's about where you're going. I think the second thing with leadership is really clarity, really, of... of not only where you're going, but I think some sort of consistency about the messaging you have. Like I think it doesn't matter if you work for people that are massively volatile, if they're always volatile. Because at least you go, oh yeah, he's just in a shitty mood today. <laughs> but if, if you're the sort of person, like I'm really quite calm. Like it, it takes awful, you just never want to be around me if, I, if I'm not in the right mood. Because it happens so infrequently, it just won't really happen. Generally, I just let stuff wash off me. But if, if you can't be like that and then have every third Thursday where you're having a meltdown because you know it's very hard for people to work around that, which sort of leads you to the next bit, which is ultimately it is the team, you know. And I think, you know, I was really lucky when I was Prime Minister. <clears throat> and, and yeah, sure, you make your own luck, but, but the luck was also created because we had Bill and Stephen and Paula and, you know, just a million other people waiting. There was some chief staff who most people wouldn't know. And, and that's what comes through when you read Obama's book. You know, it's, yeah, sure, he's a, you know, the greatest orator, you know, probably the world's produced in a very long time. And, yeah, he had a vision for what he wanted a modern America to look like. But actually underneath it all, he had this cadre of people that were the, in the sanctum of his team and like I had when I was there for you know really 10 years leave of the party they never left you know and so I think that's a lot of what it has and I think just the last thing is you constantly have to be evolving and creating yourself it doesn't mean that you always have to throw everything out it always has to change but we live in a world that is constantly changing like so I'm chairman of ANZ and do you really think banking services is going to look like it looks today? It's not. I mean, the reason we close branches is no one goes there. Not because we're trying to be annoying. It's because, you know, it's not just people in this audience, but it's everybody gets up in the morning and says, I don't want to go down a bloody branch and work out what my bank balance is or actually see my bank manager if I want to buy a house or anything else. Actually, everything they want to do is digital. So, you know, just to give you an example, at ANZ, on people go onto the ANZ Go Money, their digital app, twice a day on average, sometimes three times. They go onto the internet, their laptop, 
twice a week to go into a branch once a year. Wow. And that's usually to get foreign exchange or cash a cheque. And now we're getting rid of cheques and we're not even getting much of foreign exchange. So you're never going to come in and see us. Wow. So it's that kind of thing of it. Yeah, I love that. And in terms of uh, you know, visionary, so I think all great leaders are great visionaries. And when we look back to when you were a child, yeah. you had a vision uh, of around eight or nine years old, maybe younger, yeah. to make a million dollars, mum, yeah. and I'm going to be prime minister. Yeah. Where did that vision come about? What inspired you? Um, well, I think firstly, mum was a really interesting woman, actually. So I, I kind of have a... Um, some respects a very unusual background. So mum was an Austrian Jewish refugee. So she was born in Austria in 1922, um, Jewish family. Her father died when she was about 15. And when she was, mum was 16, the Nazis were invading Austria. And the way the world worked then was that, um, the way it works today is if, if you want to come to Ireland, like come to New Zealand, okay, and you're Irish, all good, and say you had a brother and they were the only two kids, right, and your brother was here in New Zealand and then you wanted to bring your parents out, for instance, that would be allowed under New Zealand rules. And the reason is that's family um, reunification and the nucleus of the family would be deemed to be in New Zealand because both of the siblings are in New Zealand, right? So that's not how it worked in 1938 in the UK, which was, um, it was about whether you were married. If you were married, you could sponsor someone in. And so mum had an aunt called Lottie, and Lottie literally paid a British soldier to marry her so that she could sponsor mum and her brother, and the rest of the family wouldn't come. And all of mum's wider family, with the exception of her mother, went to the concentration camp. So they were the only two to get out. And then, you know, mum met dad and they came out to New Zealand. It was a very long story, but when dad was, when I was about five or six, dad just had this massive heart attack and dropped down dead. So I don't know him at all. So I was really raised by mum. I have no memory at all of dad. And I think it was really through mum who, who sort of, she was a combination of lots of different things, but very determined woman. So she would just say, look, your life is going to change in all sorts of ways that you don't know. I, I never thought I'd go to England. I couldn't speak a word of English. I always thought I'd be well off. The family was well off when they were in Austria. Couldn't get the money out, obviously. And, you know, I never thought I'd be raising three kids without a husband. But, you know, guess what? That happened. All these different things. And so she just sort of said, look, you've got to focus on the things that they can never take away from you, which is sort of education really is one of those most things. But she said also in the end, you know, you get out of life what you put into it. And if you really put enough into it, you'll make your own luck. You know, you won't, it won't, not everything will work out. You won't succeed at everything, but you'll never succeed if you don't give it a go and you'll never succeed if you don't give it a hundred percent. And so I kind of thought, well, in the end, yeah, I don't want money just for the sake of money, but money's all about what it can bring for you. Mum always used to say to me, money, you know, won't bring happiness. And I always used to go, sure as hell helps. <laughs> um, so... And it does. The reality okay. is that you know, if you've got financial independence, you don't feel constrained and you don't feel frightened in the way that so many people do when they can't pay the bills. So that was important. But I mean, obviously, I was I was just always politically interested. And I, I think, you know, what motivates you when you're nine versus when you're 40, which was when I ran, is different. But I just always thought in my kind of adult years, um, New Zealand was an incredible country that underperformed. And I think I just sort of thought, I could make a difference. And I think you have to have, truthfully, every politician has an A-type personality and has an ego. And if they don't, they probably shouldn't be there because you really need that to bounce and deflect all the negative stuff that yeah. comes at you, really. Absolutely. And so you went away to North America for quite a bit? Yeah. 
Well, I went to, uh, what happened was I, uh, initially when I came out, actually I was an accountant, so I did accounting and economics, and then I started in the financial markets when they deregulated in 1987, basically, and sort of spent eight years in New Zealand running Bankers Trust really in the end, and then I just decided, look, I'd really outgrow New Zealand. So I went to London, uh, went, to, went to Singapore actually to run Asian Foreign Exchange for Merrill Lynch, who were sort of huge, but useless in foreign exchange, but absolutely huge. And I got out there for about three months and I had an Australian boss, the guy was crazy actually, he was a really, really nice guy, he's mad. And he comes down, he turns out he had sacked the guy who ran Global Foreign Exchange. So this guy ran a number of businesses and he came down, he had dinner with me and he said, oh, I've got rid of Sun, so I don't think he's up to the job. And I said, I'm not surprised. And he goes, why? And I go, because this operation sucks. It's so bad, I'm thinking about going back to Auckland. Honestly, people have got you know, clueless. And he goes, if you're so clever, I'll send you to London to run Global Foreign Exchange here. And I went, okay. He goes, if you don't make it in 12 months, I'll sack you. I said, don't worry, sunshine. If I don't make it in 11 months, I'll quit. We'll just get out in front, you know. And um, we went there, and that business was making about $200 million a year, which for Merrill was not a lot of money. You know, it sounds like a lot, but it wasn't a lot, 200 million US. And in the first year I ran it, we made a billion, and we never made under a billion after that. Brilliant. So, but we cha completely changed the business. So we went in there and said, okay, we're doing this and we should be doing this and we've got to evolve to this and this and so, and we built an amazing, again, amazing group of people that came and worked for us who wanted to have Merrill Lynch on their CV like Goldman Sachs or Morgan Stanley, you know, Blue Blood Investment Bank. And you were relatively young when you went and did that, so how did you know to pivot? How did you know, like, hey, I want to take it this way. I'm seeing what's going on there, it's not really working for us. Mm. Go from 200 million to a billion substantial in a short, very short yeah. time. So how did you know what to do? Or was it hit, hit and miss trial and error? No, well, it wasn't really hit and miss. It was a bit technical with yeah, getting into the boring details. But the fundamentals of the investment banks in those days were they were price takers. So they would, if they had a big client, because we ultimately had massive hedge fund clients who we supported, if they came in like George Soros or Tiger or whatever and came and said, I want to buy $500 million against the yen, um, we would ring up Citibank and say, give us a price. And that doesn't make sense because those clients know you're doing that, and so why don't they just go straight to Citibank? You know, that's the argument. Now they don't always get the credit and things, so there are some reasons why they come to you, but we got a fraction of their business. So we used to look around, and we were the number one in every product category. Like We were the biggest hedge fund manager, we were the biggest equity player, and so we were like number 25 in foreign exchange. And so I'd just sit there and go, well, it doesn't make sense. We have the best relationship in the world with all these people from Boeing to George Soros, but we don't get their business. And the reason we don't get their business is they don't think we're any good. So to do that, we have to have liquidity. So I went to London. When I went, first went to London, the first you know, month I was there, I thought, well, we've just got to change. We've got to, we've, got to, we've got to make ourselves look like Deutsche Bank or Citibank, and we've got to do that. And so I went out for lunch with a guy called Lloyd Blankfein, who ran Goldman Sachs. Actually, Lloyd... You know, some people think I've done all right. She's Lloyd's really. If your definition is making billions, then Lloyd's done bloody well. So he was the managing partner of Goldman, you know, right, actually right through the GFC and everything else. Amazing guy, Lloyd Blankman. And I had lunch with him and I said, We're going to go into bank and you should come with us. And he said, I'm not coming with you. And I said, Well, why not? And he said, Because we don't need to. And I said, yeah, Of course you need to. You know, work out, you know, work out what's happening. You guys are taking all this risk. You can't get out of things, you know, captured by these people. We're going to kill them, and you know we, we're going to take these guys apart. We are their customers, and when we're, we're not there, we're going to dominate. And he said, oh, I don't know. I said, oh, don't be such a scary cat, for God's sake. Anyway, worked on for about a month, and eventually said, okay, if you go, I'll go. Right. And Morgan Stanley came with us, and within about two years, we were dominating the you know, world rankings. 
and, and it was pretty logical. And so we went to being, num- we went from 25 to I think four, number four in the world in yeah. FX. Incredible. And just huge volume. So it was a bit like, you know, we could work out what to do. I mean, I'd love to tell you we were rocket science, but it was a bit like when I became prime minister. I mean, I came to PM in 08. It was pretty bloody obvious that China was going to be the biggest economy in the world. You didn't have to be that smart to say, if we have a good economic relationship with them, we can underpin a lot of jobs and make a lot of money. So I went eight times when I was prime minister and we had a great relationship with them. And, and you know, it was part of what got us through the GFC. Yeah. Amazing. I've always looked at you as someone who takes a common sense approach. Yeah. You know, there's no BS, there's no yeah. funny games. So you always take a common sense approach. Whether you're being interviewed by someone who's asking yeah. awkward questions, yeah, yeah. you can write back at them. Yeah. So relationships and building relationships and rapport have obviously been a key part of your success. Yeah. So do you have any tips for anybody out there, anybody in the audience here, on how to build genuine, authentic relationships? Well, I think um, the first thing is that it's like a marriage, you know, you have to work on it you know it, it's it's lovely to assume that it's all going to be perfect and it's all going to work out all the time but like any like any relationship it goes through varying different stages of development I think that's true when you work with people so um, people ultimately have to feel like part of the team and they have to feel valued and I think often companies forget to do the little things they actually builders do it pretty well they have a roof shout and they buy lots of beers on the Friday afternoon and they have a barbecue and you know, they do quite a good job, actually, I think. Not all of them, but obviously some of them do. And I think companies often lose sight of that, you know. And I think, so I think one thing is just having a sense of it. And, in fact, I was, I was saying to Carolyn when she picked me up at the airport that, and this is not something I've said to Max, but he's obviously been around me so much because when you're in the political world, you live like this. But he has a bunch of different gangs of builders that work for him. And he's got about five or six sites that are on the go at the moment. And he wanted to show me one of them yesterday because we were just working on something. So I said, oh, yeah, let's go and have a look. So we went out and it was all good. So we wander in and there must have been about eight or nine guys on the site. And he went over to every one of them. And I've never told him to do this. He just went over and he went, hi, Billy, hi, Judas, hi, thing, hi, thing, you know, blah, blah. There were two of them, the guys I didn't know, he introduced me to them. Um, he said, you know, why is that over there? What's happening here? What was the problem here? Have you sorted this out? Is there anything else you need? And when we left, he went round and said to all of them, you know, have a nice weekend, hope you're all good. Hmm. So it's just little things that sometimes we sort of forget. And, you know, like there's a quite a, quite a, I think it's true, but years ago, and if you look at management sort of studies that we saw, if someone comes in to resign to you and you talk them out of leaving, I think something like three quarters of them leave within 12 months, even when they say yes and stay. Because there's a real, if you get to the point where you're walking in to resign, there's something going on that means you're not sure. Mm-hmm. And, and you often get talked out of it, but then you actually realize in the end, when you wake up a few days later, I think it's a bit like being in a relationship that's not working and the girlfriend starts crying and then you say, oh, okay, yeah, I didn't really mean it. And usually that's the last. Totally. Um, so I think, I think, um, I think that's that's one really important thing. I think in the end also, you, I always reckon you've just got to get the best people. I just don't compromise, and I always trust my instincts. I always say to Max, mate, trust your instincts. Whatever you, that's the only advice I gave Bill English when, when I retired and he became prime minister. I said, whatever you think, trust your instincts. And there are people in my life I've met where I've just thought I don't trust that and I can't tell you what's wrong, and maybe I'll get it wrong sometimes and miss an opportunity, but I'd rather miss an opportunity 
that then go against my instincts because this is the problem as soon as you go against your instincts and something goes wrong you start second guessing so and you never really believe in it and if you look at like you know you've got Sam White look around, go and ask Richie McCraw and those guys. Most of what they did actually was training the All Blacks to get themselves in a position of what it would feel like if they were leading by one point or down by one point with 10 minutes to go in a World Cup final, which by the way is what happened in 2011. Yep. And he said to me after that game, he said, I kind of enjoyed it. And I said, seriously? He goes, no, I kind of just, I trained for so long to get myself in that mental space, but when I was there, I kind of liked it. Mm. And I think it's a bit like people that, it's a funny thing when you're, in, when you're in a highly pressured environment. I think it'd be like that for a lot of sports people. Part of it is that sheer fear of running out, and oh God, and you know, if it all goes wrong. But then part of it is that you feed off that and you love it, you know? So I think you've got to, you've really got, whatever you do, you have to have the best people that you back. And, um, Hopefully they'll uh, they'll work out, and if they don't, you got to change it. Mm. I love that. And so when you go into back into prime minister mode, and you're dealing with some major crisis, because I think back to what you were dealing with, uh, you walked into a GFC, mm. and then the Christchurch earthquake. Yeah. So when you're managing crisis, which all, all the guys in the audience yep. here are managing crisis weekly with yep. different business things and personal things. What's your approach to managing crisis? So when emotions are high and you're feeling it, heart rate's rising, the pressure's yeah. on, you've got to make a decision. Do you have a, a process you go through to make that decision? Um, I don't know if I have a process, but I have a, I have a way I know that I deal with it. I mm-hmm. mean, it's, it's not as, probably almost as sophisticated as saying it'll be this and this and this, and it just happens. But, well, one of the things is I do think, actually, on balance, if you can be calm, that's really important. Because I just wonder, you know, how good a decision are you really going to make if you're yelling and screaming? You know, there are a few sports stars, the sort of John McEnroe's of the world, where it's been part of the persona and it's kind of worked. But as a general rule, I would say, you know, you kind of need to be calm to make the right decisions. I think the second thing you have to realise is, okay, what, worry about the things you can control. So I, I never worry about stuff I can't control. I just go, well, I can't control that. So I mean, you know, anything might happen, but I, that's not my issue. I'll just worry about the things that are within, you know. And then I think the, the next thing is, what are the things that really matter? So like Italian political sense is not as much in a crisis, but in a political sense, this is what matters. The economy, law and order, health and education, they're the only things people vote on. Mm-hmm. I don't care how much you tell me it's, yep, there were some single issue voters that worry about gay rights or, or climate change or something, very few of them. Largely, they, they worry about, do I have a job? Is grandma going to be okay when she goes to hospital? Will I be safe if I walk down the street at night? You know, will my kids get a decent education? They are the things people worry about. And so companies I find spend, and I'm, I'm involved in one company at the moment, which and I was really giving the CEO hell the other day, because I said, you mate are spending way too much time on shit that doesn't matter, and way too little time on the stuff that does matter. So I'll tell you what does matter, and I'll tell you the stuff to stop doing. That's and if you don't do it, I'm going to change you. Because you, you you've got no focus. And so I think you've got to have that kind of determination to say, what is the stuff that really, really matters? And the other last thing I just say is you really need to be flexible and, and dexterous. And, you know, because one thing that happens in a crisis, when you, certainly when you're prime ministers, you, have, you, you would think they have perfect information, and they don't. 
Like I see Jacinda getting up half time on this COVID-19 stuff and sometimes she can't answer the question and people are yelling and screaming. But I kind of think, yeah, well, I kind of know why she can't answer the question because they haven't told her the answer. Yeah. Like they just don't know. They don't know what's happening. And, and, and actually in a modern world where the media are everywhere, you know, they're, you know, they're ubiquitous and they have, everyone has a mobile phone, they're all filming things and blah, blah, blah. You know, it's happening faster than the officials can cope with. Yeah. But I think what happens is, I think in the end you have to make a decision and you have to back that decision, whatever that is. And I reckon you back it till you're not backing it. And then if you have to change, you change. But if the decision that I'm doing X, Y, Z, I mean, we went into Christchurch and we could re- we realised very quickly, look, there were tens of thousands businesses that couldn't get into town. We, you know, we couldn't get into their offices. There were 60,000 people that were employed by them. There's no way they were going to pay the wages. And if they're under 20 employees at least they didn't have business continuity insurance so we just sat there um, between Jerry Brownlee Bill and myself and Stephen Joyce and we just said okay we're just going to pay everybody for 12 weeks and we're going to pay them this amount of money and the officials just Treasury just looked at us and said you've got to be joking we've got to go through this process and that process and they will tell you you've got to be joking this is the way we're doing it and if we hadn't done that those businesses would have died and look my entire time as Prime Minister post being um, post the earthquake, I pretty much went to Christchurch every week. And every week when I walked down the street, someone would come up to me and say, they still do it now when I go to Christchurch. They go, you saved my business. And that was the basis of what Jacinda used for COVID-19 response. Amazing. Um, and yeah, when, yeah, there's nothing miraculous in the way about what we did, but we just sense. knew that we needed to do it. And it was the speed at which we did it. But if it wasn't working, we would have changed it. But I think you have to really, I think, about a you just have to, like I say, trust your instincts, back the decision, what's really important, what isn't important. And I remember at one point there was all these rows about, oh, I don't know, some stupid stuff about whether enough toilets between different portable toilets in different places. And I, I just remember saying to Bill, geez, do you reckon that's the big stuff or do you reckon that's that, you know, 187 people have died and by the way, we've got all these other things going on and when are people actually going to be able to get back into their offices? And so you will just take a bit of cop, cop a bit of stuff from John Campbell and he'll get over it. Yeah, move on. Move on. I love it. I hope you're enjoying the conversation with Sir John so far. There's so much more to come, but I wanted to hop in for a brief moment to let you know about the Purpose Club. Not everybody can afford one-to-one coaching or the Leaders Mastermind. So I put together the Purpose Club so for less than a dollar a day, you can get six-figure coaching, life coaching, business coaching. I go live every month and share my best strategies. I also send you out weekly reminders, planning emails, templates, frameworks. It's an amazing membership. So if you'd like to know a little bit more about it, please head over to my website, www.jjlachlan.com forward slash The Purpose Club. I look forward to seeing you there, guys, and enjoy the rest of the show. And so it's interesting when you talk about the CEO that you gave a bit of flack this week. You said, oi, you know, get the focus narrowed and focus on what matters. So... That board role essentially is a little bit like a coaching role or a mentorship role. Yeah, I think it's an interesting thing being on the board. I, I, I think at one level, you, I mean, you're not there to be at war with the CEO. Yeah. But equally, on the other side of the coin, you are there to provide a bit of contestable opinion, and you are there to probably provide a bit of wisdom. I think really, I mean, that's really the argument. I think so. You want them to be able to bounce stuff off you, but equally. You do want to say, hey, you know, is that really right? And um, I mean, like I just give you the banking example. There's a different CEO, so don't take it wrong because it wasn't <laughs> the CEO. But but 
at ANZ, um, our CEO is great, Antonio Watson, I'm pointing to, she's fantastic. But ASB about two or three weeks ago came out with this product, and it's a one. It's, believe it or not, it's a floating exchange rate, which doesn't float. So it's a one point seven nine percent exchange rate if you do a new build development, and it's for three years. So it's not actually a floating exchange rate, but you know, that's the theory. <laughs> and I said to Antonia the other day, "What do you reckon about that?" She said it was really clever. And she said, "We well, it's really clever, and we hadn't really thought about it." And I said, "Well, we should have." Like someone in the long shot should have, eh? Mm. Yeah, it be. doesn't really matter, but um, like, yeah, I mean, when, when we're the biggest, and, but if you want to stay the biggest, this is our problem. We're the biggest in every product category. We're one in three home loans, one in two New Zealanders have a relationship with us. You know, and the problem is, it's easy to get all those big numbers and stats. I mean, our balance sheet's 140 billion, blah, blah, blah. And you get deluded by all that stuff, and you, boiling frog syndrome. You wake up one day and you go, Geez, where'd my market go? And the answer is some fintech took it off me. And so we have to be dexterous and clever. And if we're not coming up with that really clever idea, we have to be intellectually honest with ourselves to ask ourselves why not. Now, we do lots of clever things. I'm just saying, and there's no point in being ridiculously hard on ourselves. I mean, it's not like we've got to lock up on every bright idea. But I really try and encourage our guys that you've got to constantly be, we've got to be the internal um, competitor. We've got to constantly ask ourselves, what, what, are, what are those people going to do? Because if you go to an offsite for ASB, you know, BNZ, Kiwi Bank, what do you reckon they write on the board? I'll tell you what they write on the board, ANZ. Because yeah. we have the biggest market share in every category, so why wouldn't you go after us? Because you shoot where the ducks are. So. Shoot where the ducks are, I love that. Yeah. That's a goodie. Um, it's interesting, so... You do a lot of work in Palo Alto. Yeah, and Silicon Valley, yeah. You see how they operate as companies. Yeah. And often their biggest challenge is execution of what they're currently doing yeah. and innovation of what they need to be doing. Yeah. So do you see anything that they do in their companies that you can bring back in New Zealand companies? Like, hey guys, we, we can execute on what we need to do, but here's how we innovate and balance that. Yeah, so one thing, one thing in Silicon Valley is you just assume every... Yeah, every everyone succeeds and everything's <laughs> Facebook and Google and WhatsApp, you know. And there's a guy actually on I'm on Palo Alto Networks board, we're still the largest cybersecurity company in the world. And there's a guy on that board called Jim Getz. And Jim is the he is to, you know, basically um, V C money in Silicon Valley, what, you know, Nadal is to tennis wow. or, you know, you know, Maradona is the football, or whatever. you know, he is as good as it gets. So he was the managing partner at Sequoia, and and he's just sort of really retiring, really. He's 53 or something. So he did WhatsApp, Facebook, Zoom, Google. He did everything. He's done everything. Like, he's got to be worth so many billions. It's funny. <laughs> like, many, 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 many billions. And... When you talk to me, he goes, yeah, okay, but we have a portfolio and I can name hundreds that have gone wrong. But, you know, he's got, these, he's got a lot of big calls, right? Um, so part of it is he just looks for these people. He really backs people and often with an idea that he can kind of see you know, is going to be there. So Zoom wasn't the first to, to you know, video messaging, was it? I mean, Skype was. Yep. And actually, Google wasn't the first um, search engine. So everybody thinks to have the greatest product, they've got to reinvent the mousetrap or create a kind of new mousetrap. But actually, they just need to do 
something better than what's currently being there. In fact, actually, because there's real demand in this space, so it's very hard to think up something. Like in Silicon Valley, you will get someone who's brilliant who will come along and say, I'm going to invent what, say, the thing they call a container, which is essentially, you know, in the cloud and it's a virtual, it's a virtual storage yep. facility. Um, so yeah, you get some brilliant people who will think up that concept, but a lot of it is just, you know, it's just them coming up and saying, here's, a, here's what I do, my question is how am I going to do it better than the other guys and in fact there's a guy I work, do some work for who believes not he makes green concrete okay so he's worked out how to make concrete at half the energy output of wow. anything else in the world so he's a really amazing guy and he's this brilliant Canadian he's young really young guy and to understand him is to, you know, this, is, this is Ryan like his <laughs> PhD is out the bloody wazoo and he said he went away one weekend and looked at Zoom and Skype and about 10 of these video messaging things and said, yeah, I worked out that they were obviously the best technology with the best, best this and this and this, this. And he said, my only problem was I just didn't buy the stock. So, Fantastic. So yeah, there's, I think that's a bit of what they do. Mm. They, it's just a different model there because one thing is they, like at Palo Alto, we make, you know, I don't know, about seven or eight billion US a year. Wow. Um, and we're a 30, six billion dollar company but yeah you know, i suspect we're going to be a, a, a lot more i mean just you know total market's going crazy as people ultimately move off to the cloud and yeah. all that sort of stuff um and i said to the ceo one day um when do you reckon we'll pay a dividend and he just looked at me like i was a martian he said well google don't pay one so i love it and he came from google he was the number wow. four guy at google so um so the world is very different. Whereas if you look at ANZ, we are traditional defensive banking stock. We're a dividend stock. People, but people don't buy us for growth really. They'll argue they do, but they actually buy us for a dividend. Mm. If you don't pay the dividend, they're not happy. That's excellent. Now, so going back to uh, everything that you've done, so the banking, um, all the travel, being a dad, being a partner, yeah. being a prime minister, it's a lot to take on as a human and a lot to compartmentalize. So is there anything you've done when the stakes were high, you had a lot, you're juggling a lot, to just balance your well-being, balance your mindset, to make sure you could just show up, be a great dad, show up, be an amazing prime minister? Any habits that you, you did? Yeah, I think, um, I think the first thing is you've got, you've got to have, a, every human being needs a little bit of me time. So largely when I was prime minister, I'd sort of get up at 530 I mean, the great thing when you live with police, you know, 24-7 is that they're all young and fit. So, um, you know, we'd run down to the gym, we'd do boxing. Well, what that really means is they'd hold up pads and I could hit them if I felt like <laughs> it. Um, and occasionally I did just to see whether they were awake. Um, and, and then sort of run back and we'd just, I mean, might do 40 minutes, there's nothing great. Yep. But, and, and that was really where golf came along. You know, mm -hmm. obviously I couldn't go and play all the time because that's just not practical in your province. But I'd go to the range for 40 minutes or I'd do something. And so partly, firstly, I think everybody needs a little bit of that, just mm. something to clear the mind and to feel like you're just doing something. Because you do so much, in the nicest possible way I mean this, you do so much, everything's about stuff for everybody else. You know, and that can be the family, it can be constituents, it can be whatever. You just got to do a little bit of something where you say, this is kind of what I do. And that's why I'm learning to fly the helicopter at the moment. I'm not really doing it because I'm going to fly myself all the time. Although I probably will fly quite a bit, but I'll probably take a safety pilot with me most of the time. But I just like the mental concept of it. Like you feel wrecked after an hour. Mm. Like you're really, you know, and it's just, 
the challenge, I think, of just doing something that's about, I'm, not, I'm just interested and I'm, I like it, you know. I think the second thing is that whatever you're doing, you've got to, you've got to do that. And, and, you know, the single biggest thing, like if you have kids, you know, pick up your mobile. If you're having dinner with the kids, get rid of your mobile phone. Yeah. So I, I think you really do have to say, look, it is so much better to put your phone down, concentrate on what you're doing, have quality time, than, than kind of pretend that, you know, you are listening when you're really not and you're playing on your phone and you're looking at some email and you're focused on something else. Now, you know, look, the, the reality is that you can have a lot going on and you can't completely switch your mind off. Reality is you'll always think about other things that are going on. But I think, um, you know, especially when it comes to kids, but, but, but also partners, you know, it's massively important that you give them... Give them um, the, you know th that time and their attention and if you look at it in a political sense I, I got to meet and have lunch a couple of times with Bill Clinton and yeah he's from the other side of the political fence to me and all that sort of stuff although he actually balanced the books in America which very few people have done um, and they always say about Clinton he's one of these guys that you know you feel like you're the only person in the room when you're there but it's it, and, and, I, it's, uh, and I hate to buy into the sort of cliches because it feels like you're just parroting what everyone wants you to say but it really is true it's unbelievable like he just has this capacity to um i don't know just to to make you feel as though he's solely focused on what you're saying and what you're doing i mean he's quite a brilliant guy i mean yeah. he's got a few issues but few i mean yeah but i like i remember i went to this clinton global initiative thing at one point I was PM, and we just announced that we were turning the Kumadex into a nation sanctuary. And he was always quite keen on the Kumadex, you know. So to be fair, he knew a bit about it. But we were slightly late because we had met this thing, and it was like hundreds of times, and he had met Damon was on the stage with him, and he had all these hundreds of people, and he was doing a bit of an intro. And we came in, and they had these seats near the front for us, and I just wanted to go and listen to him. So I told my guys, just carve out some time, and we'd go and, you know, see Bill speak. So we went down there, and as we were walking, he went, um, oh, you know, ladies and gentlemen, this is you know, John Keyes coming in, the audience Prime Minister of New Zealand. And then he just gave this five-minute dissertation about the Kermadex and about their importance in the world and the things that New Zealand were doing and about me. And it was like, you know, it was... If you'd given them... If you'd had days of warnings and things and lots of briefing notes, you could say, OK, I get it. But this guy hadn't done that. And he was just curious he was curious about people and so you know it's it's a challenge i think to not dominate not always dominate the conversation but be engaged in the conversation so it's a happy medium somewhere along the line yeah, absolutely um not, not one that we always we you know we and politicians always get right but i think there's a bit of that stuff because I think one of the things is, you know, I always said to people, you know, I came into politics, you know, as Steffi and Max's dad and as Brona's husband, and I intend to leave like that. Yeah. And I did. And I think if you go to Parliament with a bad marriage, it'll never last. If you go there with a good marriage, it will. But, but anything, it doesn't matter whether it's Parliament or whether you're running a business or whether you're doing something else, there are just pressures in there. And just because it doesn't work doesn't mean you're a failure. I mean, the simple facts of life are the divorce rate runs around almost most countries in the Western world at 40 or 50%. It is what it is. But, um, but I do think that, that you know, if, if you really want to make it work, you really do have to say, what am I prepared to put into that? Yeah. Because it won't just be enough that you've got money, 
because there's been a lot of very high profile people who've got divorced recently who have hundreds of billions of dollars and yep. that hasn't saved them either. So it's That's not right. just about money, it's much more than that, I think. And with your kids, I mean, ultimately, I don't know, we've been pretty lucky, we have a great relationship with our kids. It doesn't mean we don't have disagreements or tell them off from you know, they're younger, I suppose, but, um, but, you know, in the end, in the end, they're just, they're an important part of our lives. Yeah. And talking about your kids, you know, I've got a young five-year-old, little yeah. Finn, and certainly the day that he came along, my whole perspective of the world yeah. changed. So how do you want to be remembered as a dad? Yeah, I think, I, th- I think someone that they could rely on and was there for them and the things that really mattered. Um, and that, you know, like, I, funny enough, I mean, when Max was playing baseball and rugby and football, le- less if because she was um, slightly interested in netball and vaguely that was, a, you know, it wasn't messy in sport. But, but, but with, for her, it was other things. I used to go to, like, I used to say to my guys at work, you know, as Prime Minister, I'd say, like, Max's rugby is from 10 to 11. So take my diary out from 10 to 11. Now, obviously, there's some days you're overseas or there's days where it's the National Party annual conference, in which case there is no getting out from yeah. 10 to 11. I mean, it is what it is. But generally, I'd say, yeah, they want me to open that building or they want me to go to this thing or they want me to do something. That's all cool. Let's do it from 6 a.m. in the morning till 9.30 or let's do it from 11.30 to whatever, but we're not doing it from 10 to 11. And sometimes they'd come in and they'd try and say, oh, yeah, but this person really wants to see you then. And I'd go, you know what that person does, but they're really going to see me also at 11.30. And 99.9% of the time they did. I went to more of Max's rugby games than lots of other parents did. And I was Prime Minister. Brilliant. You created boundaries, you know, like you know. chat to clients about that, yeah. saying no, the power yeah. of saying no to things. Yeah. And you, creating boundaries for the people you love. Yeah, you, well, you've got to, you know, because if you want to. So, so I think, you know, you would hope that they would come back and say, you know. And I said to Max, when we, when we were, um, he must have been about 14 or 15, but it was in the 2014 election. Sorry, maybe it was a little bit old, maybe it was about 17. I, we were just driving along one afternoon. It was like a Sunday afternoon and all the stuff had done, you know, because election campaigns are weird. They're lower workload than normal time when you're Prime Minister because everything's geared around the six o'clock news. So you do all this campaigning in the morning, you make some announcement, you do these things, you shake hands and kiss babies, and then by about three o'clock it's all over because the journalists have got everything they want and that's the end of it. And so we went off to the driving range, we were just going to hit some balls, and I said, do you reckon on balance has been a good thing, I've been Prime Minister, a bad thing? And he said, ah, oh, by 100% a good thing. Brilliant. And so, you know, I think, so, so yeah, I think that's what you want to be remembered. I think you also want to be remembered the more than that. Because, I mean, look, I, we go to lots of things and gazillions of people come up and take photos and do stuff and all that sort of stuff. But, you know, to them, I'm their dad. And, um, and that has good and bad. They, they, they also see probably a side of me that other people don't see. And, you know, you know, like any parent, we're going to tell them off or we're going to have bad days or we're going to have good days. We're going to have lots of fun things. And... and I remember when Max was playing around first, he was really the first, it was more him than Steffi because she was in France at AFS, but it was, I remember when he started playing around on social media, because he was, we were really the first family that had that, and yeah, because prior to me was Helen, she didn't have kids, and then prior to that there wasn't any social media. And I remember a couple of times my office came in and said, oh yeah, Max is always getting himself in trouble on social media because he always posts some bloody inappropriate thing. <laughs> and so I'd ring him up and go, oh, you kind of do realise it would be kind of cool if you didn't do that. And in the end he'd say, well look, yeah, I get it. 
No, I shouldn't have done that one. I go, yeah, yeah, no shit, Sherlock. And, um, but then he'd sort of say, I, he'd sort of eventually he would say to me, look, you chose to be Prime Minister. Every one of my mates is on social media. Are you really telling me I shouldn't be? And I said, well, probably not. Yeah. So, yeah, it's just like, you know, you have to sort of, I don't know, roll with the punches. And I actually think, you know, New Zealand public are amazingly forgiving and it's the media that are much more, you know, wound up and in PC and you know the average the, the average right? the average punters are just like they have kids and they have families and they have normal things and their life isn't any more perfect than your life is. That's right. So they 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 live in the real world and they just they like all that sort of stuff. They they like it when you muck around and you have fun and it's just a it's just be normal. Certain elements of the media that don't like it. So no, I get I'm it. 100%. It. it makes sense. And I was just thinking. You know, when you were Prime Minister, like, what's the greatest uh, sacrifice? Because it would have been one thing, like, I had to sacrifice that to be the PM. What, what would that greatest sacrifice have been? Um, I mean, this isn't the greatest sacrifice, but there is an argument financially. Mm. I mean, I'd come from, had come from Merrill Lynch and, you know, making, you know, a pretty big seven-figure seven salary. Um, to you know, obviously you make nothing, in effect, really. Mm-hmm. So, um, and, and it's and it's that point in your life, you know, from forty to fifty-five is probably a big income earning period for a lot of people in their lives. Yep. So there was certainly that was that was a sacrifice in, in that. Yeah, you know, I didn't need it, so it was all fine. I'm not going to claim I'm a martyr. I'm just sort of saying, you know, practically you can make that you can make that case. Look, I think the biggest sacrifice you really make is that you can't. You can't be prime minister a bit of the time. Mm. You know, it's it really is. You know, three hundred and sixty-five days of the year. You know, it's. It, I mean, outside of the whole the holidays and even the holidays, ultimate ultimately, you know, it's still fun. And I, I was you know, just reading Obama's book at the moment. He just says that. He's talking about he goes home for dinner, which is nice because it's one minute commute. Because by the way, it's right by the White House. Um, but he said, you know, they'd have dinner and then he'd go down to the treaty room and by the time he went to bed at night, Michelle was asleep. And So you're there, but you kind of, you, you give up a lot of time. But then I kind of sort of think, you know, life's for living and you only get one shot at it. And, and, and that's why I often say to people, I say, you know, do you reckon when they're lowering the bloody, you know, box into the ground, you'll sit back and think, I shouldn't have bought that or I shouldn't have done that or I shouldn't have had that experience I mean I'm going to die honestly unless I'm crashing in the back of a car at 100 miles an hour and smash the helicopter into the ground I'm going <laughs> to die happy I really am because I'm going to look back and think shit I did, I did all the things I wanted to do I gave it a go you know what a life um, yeah and people shouldn't feel sad they should feel happy for me that I you know that I did the things I wanted to do I'm not saying I got everything right um, but but I just didn't want to die wondering and I'm not going to and and that's in lots of different things, you know. And I just kind of think, you know, I always used to say to our caucus, this is what happens in politics. People really, it's actually really hard to become an MP. You wouldn't think it is, but trust me, you've got to win the selection, you've got to go through all these things. So you walk over broken coals to get there. So the normal standard procedure is... Um, that someone comes to Parliament, they fight like cat and dog to get there. As soon as they get, get in Parliament, they moan and bitch and complain the whole time they're there. And when they leave, they try and come back. And I used to go, you are losing the plot. 
You should fight like cat and dog to get there, really enjoy it when you're there and when you leave, never come back. Yeah. And it, like enjoy what you're doing, you know, like it's really easy to wake up every day and go, oh, this is wrong or that's wrong or whatever, but is it really? I mean, compared to, and it's not about being silly, it's not about saying, well, our life is so much better than someone who lives in Palestine. Yeah, yeah it is, but you know, that's not, the, that's not the reference point. Or it's like a lot of people that have um, life experiences where you know, they'll get cancer or they'll get something and they survive it. They have a completely different perspective on life. But the benchmark of everything can't be, oh, well, the alternative would be I have terminal cancer and three weeks to live. Because that's not a realistic benchmark. That's like saying, if, I, if you told me I've got terminal cancer, I've got three weeks to live, I probably wouldn't sweat anything either other than the fact that I've only got three weeks to live because, by definition, nothing else really matters then. But that's not the real world. We live in the real world where someone takes your parking spot, they're in the wheeze me. Or, you know, whatever, you know, that sort of stuff. So that's the real world we live in. But, but I do think that for the most part, you should try and enjoy it because even if you don't, the days are just going to take as long and what's the point, you know? And if you don't really enjoy it, try and find something that you do. It's a beautiful way to look at it, John. I yeah. love it. Yeah. And what gets you out of bed in the morning now? Because obviously as Prime Minister, you had a major reason you had a country to get out of bed for. Yeah. What gets you out of bed now? What fires you up? Uh, things that I'm really interested in. So, you know, if it's if it's work stuff. I actually started when I first came out. I thought I would just do really big marquee companies. And, you know, I was going to be ANZ Group Chairman and, and Eden Zealand's Chairman and a few other bits and pieces. Um, what really surprised me actually was more the international offers I got, which were fantastic and so much better than I ever thought they would be, but even though they turned out to be that and they continue to be like that. Um, but actually, I've sort of somewhat changed my mind actually now. I, I, I actually turned down being ANZ Group's Chairman and I, you know, well, Winston came along, so I was never going to be Eden Zealand's Chairman, <laughs> funny that. Um, but I actually quite like being around things that are, they might actually be quite big companies yeah. but they're doing things that are really interesting and um, I've got to feel like I'm adding value to them so there's got to be a reason why I can do something that you know that they that they value so I'm not so much interested if I'm really honest and you know reading you know endless board papers which just you know and correcting the minutes I find that a bit dull I'd, I'd actually rather go along and do something where someone says, you know, well, I got something out of that. Yeah. It was good, you know. And so that that so, so on a work front, it's those kind of things where I go away and I go, you know, like I made a bit of a contribution, or I did something, or I really enjoyed what I was doing. It was fascinating. It was interesting, you know. That's why I do a bit of stuff in Silicon Valley because there's so many of these companies that are like doing amazing things yeah. and they're really cool to sort of be around. Um, and then you know. Part of it is just a different phase in our lives, I think. We, you know, Brian and I are doing lots of, you know, in the absence of COVID-19, we'd do lots of travelling and we'd catch up on, you know, friends and things where we haven't necessarily had time. And that's really why we built the place in Hawaii. We've always had a house here, but we've just got a new one. Because I still see to a lot, you know, going back to my earlier point, you really think when, you know, we're getting lowered into the ground, we'll be thinking, Jesus, we really shouldn't have spent all that money building this new house. When, you know, it'll still be worth something flying anyway. Flying the kitchen but in from Italy. Flying the kitchen in from, well, Spain, actually. So even, even worse from Madrid. <laughs> um, but, yeah, yeah, so I just sort of think, yeah, those, those kinds of things, having fun, really. I mean, that's, that's, that's a lot of it. And, and, you know, I still care a lot about the National Party, so I still spend a lot of time trying to... Um, sort out one or two issues they've got at the moment. <laughs> yeah. It's never ending. No, it's never ending. No, never ending. And the kids, obviously. Yeah. And, you know, like, they're both doing different things. And so um, helping them, really, and, you know, where, where I can. Um, 
and and sort of just trying to yeah give them yeah you know, like like any, like any parent does I think give them enough rope to do the things that you know matter but also you're there to sort of support them when, when they need it. It's beautiful. Mm. And it's interesting when you talk about being dad because you're you know you're the, the paternal member of the family. You did yeah. a lot of leadership within the family and uh, politics. You were leading the country. So when I've chatted with other leaders, they've talked about sometimes that it's lonely at the top. And they talk about the fact that they can't sometimes share everything yeah. with everybody. There's a lot of confidentiality. So through your career, when it, there were possibly those lonely at the top moments, you're like, damn, I can't really tell anybody this. Yeah. Did you have a mentor, a coach, uh, somebody that you looked up to who you could actually let it all out? And... Um, some things you can't because it's, you know, just either classified or mm. it's an issue. But I think um, my chief of staff was a guy called Wayne Eagleson. He's a, I always used to call him the unelected prime minister of New Zealand. <laughs> but he's a fantastic guy. He's got a master's in law. He's a really brilliant guy. And he'd been around for a long time. And he's, he really is the voice of sort of reason. So if he really thought, I got something wrong. He would just come and say, you got it wrong, you got to say sorry. Or you got it wrong and you got to change tact or it's not working and we've got to do something different. Or equally, you know, more often not. And almost on everything we agreed, there was only actually about two or three times where I thought he was wrong. And I just said, I just don't agree and I'm going to do what I'm doing. I, I Actually, on the, all three of those occasions, I was right. He wanted to do something, which I just thought, no, I don't know, I'm not sure about that. But mostly, he would probably, I suppose, be the person. So... The sort of things that you get in that category are like when when you when a prime minister sends troops to a war or, or a war zone, like the SAF to Afghanistan, or you know we send our our people to the reconstruction unit in in, in um, Iraq and, and and those kinds of things, you by definition know that you're going to lose people. So in Afghanistan, we lost 13 people, and some of them were SAF, some of them weren't, and I remember when I re- sent them back, we, they had a, little, we had a little farewell for them. And obviously it's in a secret location and their real immediate loved ones come on. And these SAS um, guys, they're all guys at the moment, there's no particular reason why they have to, but they are currently all males. And they're, they're phenomenal, they're like the Ferrari and they, they want to get out of the garage, trust me. You know, these guys want to be there and they're, they're the best in the world and everyone loves them, the Navy SEALs. I mean, they, all these countries want them. And they are the elite in the world and they want to be out there doing things. They just don't want to be practicing in you know, Papakura all the time. You know, they want to get out there and do things. Anyway, we wanted to send them and we thought it was the right thing to do. And I still philosophically believe it's the right thing to do because I think what happens with a country like New Zealand is we don't have enough defence forces to protect ourselves. If someone wanted to come and invade New Zealand tomorrow or do something really bad to us, they could, right? I mean, our, our Navy is about three boats and I've got friends who own more boats than the New Zealand Navy. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, you just go on and on. I mean, the Air Force was a batch of clapped out planes. and You know, we don't have much, right? Um, so the reality is we syndicate that. So what we do is we go and support all of our friends, you know, the Americans, the Australians, the Brits, whatever, and in the end, in return, we sort of syndicated that risk. And so you can't just never turn up when other people you know, need help. And so that's why we would go and train lots of forces with the Americans and things, or we'd go to Afghanistan. Or whatever. And I went to this farewell for the SAS when we sent them there and this woman came up to me and her son was going, he was a really young guy, he was about 22 or 23, she was quite young to be in the SAS and she wasn't really that old, she might have been in her 40s I reckon and she just came up to me and she put her finger on my chest and she went, I bloody well hope you know what you're doing because if my son dies, it's on you boy and I said, 
well, I do think I know what I'm doing, and I certainly hope he doesn't. Mm. But, you know, it's quite like, and when they did die, they did die. He didn't, but other people did. I used to go and see their families, and it's very lonely, you know, in that, it's not lonely, it, it's just you feel that responsibility. But the problem is, the problem is, yeah, you can avoid all of that, but how do you avoid it when you also need all of these people in other countries, it'd be like saying, I'm always going to go to the neighbours on Saturday night for dinner, but I'm never bringing any wine, I'm never bringing any food for the barbecue. Mm. At some point, they stop inviting you. So you can't, you sometimes just have to make tough decisions. And by definition, lawfully in New Zealand, to deploy our military forces, you actually have to get a parliamentary resolution, essentially. You have to get, the cabinet has to agree it, and then you have to get the legal authority to do it. So everyone says by definition the cabinet does it and they're bound by collective responsibility but it's not true. Prime Minister of no government walks in there and says I'm thinking of sending the SAS to Afghanistan and the others go no. Well we had people in our cabinet who said I don't agree and I went well that's lovely they're going. Mm. So you, only the PM can make that decision and it's like in lots of different things you do. So when people say it's lonely I think it's just more that you have to have a co- I think you have to have an enormous amount of self-confidence, but you, there's a difference between confidence um, and arrogance. The latter really gets you in trouble. And that's really why, over time, I always took the view I should retire at some point if I had the opportunity and I did it. Not because I felt burnt out, not because I couldn't have stayed. And, and actually, the, in January of the year I retired, in 2016, I said to Brian, I'm going to retire at the end of the year. And she said, yeah, I don't believe you. And I said, no, I am. And she said, she said, well, I'll tell you one thing and I think, if you're just worried about, you know, that you've been, you know, it's pretty time-consuming, she said, I would way rather you just do another term and then, then, go, then try and go back. Yeah. I said, well, don't worry, that's not an issue. And I just said, well, better to, better to go when they want you to stay than stay when they want you to go. And, and I think, you know, when you've been to the field days 10 times and you've been to APEC eight times, and you, you know, are you really going to be as energised as that and I just thought I thought they could reinvent themselves and actually to be blunt they won the 2017 election they polled 45 percent it's just that Winston hated us and ganged up with Jacinda and the rest is kind of history as they say but but in reality the plan actually worked yeah just was a small fly on the ointment such as history Murphy's law yeah well, John, just to wrap up, um, I want to say a massive thank you for taking the time to share that. It's been amazing. Great. And I've got one last question yes. for you. So what does living life on purpose mean to you? Living life on purpose? I, th- I think it's ultimately be feeling satisfied internally about how things have played out. Mm. I mean, it doesn't mean that it's always going to be perfect or it's always going to be right or the putt you just made is going in the hole or the, you know, whatever <laughs> it is that you're doing. But... I think you've got to have a reason for doing the things you do. And you know what? Do you know what I reckon happens in life? I reckon most people don't take the opportunities they could take. And do you know why? They're, they're, they're not scared of failing themselves, actually, despite what you might think. They're scared of what they think other people will think of them failing. So um, they themselves can live with the fact that you know their art isn't, the most amazing in the world or they're actually not the best tennis player in the world they're not this or they're not that but they're scared that other people will think badly of them and that's actually the problem when you're in public life everything's public yeah. by definition so every mistake you make every decision you make every you know nuance that you utter is public 
But you see, I kind of think, you know, having a purpose is having enough courage to say, well, I actually believe in what I'm doing and I'm going to do that. And otherwise you're kind of meandering around and you're, you're scared of your own shadow. And I, I've just never wanted to live my life like that. I just sort of thought, I have a view on what I think is right and I'm going to do it. And um, we've done lots of things in our lives, some good and bad, but there have been decisions that we've made that have said they're really, they're really deliberate. You know, there's, there's a reason for them. And um, I don't care whether they're what everybody else thinks. Sometimes it's just defined by the fact that we're public figures. Like I always say to Max, our test isn't just profitability. Our test is can we pass the front page of the Herald test? You know, like does it live up to what we say it is? And he's quite tough on his builders. Like he'll say... I don't care whether you could get away with that. You're going to do it like this. And it's going to be right like this. And you know, I remember years ago, it's a bit of a different story, but if you've got one second, was that we built a house one time and our, our builder went broke, actually, as it turned out. We didn't know that until the very, very end. Anyway, he had, he had failed to pay the guy that did the pool and another guy. And we didn't even really know that. Um, and one day there was this knock on the door and the and the two guys were there, and they said, uh, "We, you know, we knew obviously knew they were." And they said, "Well, here's here's basically the issue: we haven't been paid, or at least a decent amount of it." And they said, "You don't have to pay us because you've already paid us, but we're just letting you know." So I said, to "Brian, what do you reckon we should do?" He said, "What do you think we should do?" And I said, "Pay them again." Look, in the end, it didn't really matter to us. Like it just wasn't that much money. It was it was a lot of money, but it was money we could afford it. And you know, I don't know really really all worked out. Well, I think it worked out for them, hopefully. But so that's why I sort of think you've got to have what is it you want to do, the way you want to be remembered, the stuff you. So it was about being a good person. We're not always good, and we're not always altruistic, and we're not. We don't claim to be things that we're not. I'm just saying. You, it's about having that thing that is the test for you that you've done your best. And sometimes things don't work out, you know? And, you know, you, sometimes you can do everything you want and a child goes off the rails or, I don't know, a marriage doesn't work out or whatever. There's a million things. I mean, my sister's had more husbands than I've had hot dinners, you know. The <laughs> other ones had one. But, you know, and it just is what it is, you know? I mean, it, everything's different. The circumstances are different. But... Yeah, if you said, you know, have I lived my life with purpose? Well, I've had a view on what I thought was right and wrong and the things that I wanted to achieve, and I've done my best to do it. Mm. And that's all you really can do. Brilliant. Thank you for sharing that. Really appreciate yeah. it. No problems. Thank Thanks, you. I really hope you guys enjoyed that interview as much as I did. It was amazing to sit beside Sir John and hear from him what he did throughout his life, how he thought about things, how he managed business, how he managed the country, and how he was a dad. It was so amazing. So if you've taken anything from that, please share it with your friends. And if you want to get in touch to talk to me about leadership, 
about life coaching, about how I can help you in your life, please do not hesitate. Drop me an email, james at jjlachlan.com. Thank you so much for listening in today and investing in your own personal growth. Please hit that subscribe button and I would love, love, love if you'd leave me a rating and review as it really helps me to impact more people. I've got some amazing guests lined up in the coming weeks and folks, it's that time. Get out there and live life on purpose.